You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Well, welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show. Today we are joined by a pioneer of um, Australian recording music, country music in particular, but music in general, one of the hardest workers. We've actually had the opportunity to meet and interview someone who's probably toured the most out of any Australian musician. Um, that, that we've definitely come across, but anyone who's been involved in the game since the start. So thank you for joining us, Julie McKinney. Oh, thank you very much, Clancy, Harold. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, Pear, hearing a lot about you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us here. There's a lot of stuff on the wall. I'm seeing a lot of, you know, mementos from, from, a, from a, a long, long career. career. Yes, we've just put a few of those up, and a lot of them are up at Kempsey and the Slim Dusty Centre. Yeah. But we've got a few things up there, and... Slim's collection of all the Lawson and early balladeers, the books and so on. So, yes, uh, got a lot of mementos here. Now, you've just come back from Kempsey, I believe, with the uh, premiere of, uh, of the new documentary. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us how was that to kind of get back into the one of the many heartlands of, <laughs> of the music of you music. all created? Well... That was really exciting because they've got new cinemas there and it was the first time I'd been into them. And they've got this big mural um, in the foyer in both areas, you know, and I walk in there and there's Slim, huge, up on the wall of the foyer. Everyone was absolutely wonderful and I was, I was thrilled to think that we had this going in uh, Slim's hometown, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was really, really good. And very exciting. We had a great time. So the film came out uh, on the 10th of September. Yes. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about it? It's called Slim and I. Yes. It's, um, it's based actually on my story as compared to the straight one of just Slim. Yeah. But it's about the long partnership and the long marriage that we had. And what it was like, you see, it's, it's very different for a, for a woman on the road to what it is for, you know, for someone like Slim. We each had our side of things to do and we were pretty lucky in that things that Slim, say, wasn't used to doing, mm. I could do. And then on the other hand... I wasn't really good at getting under the trucks and, you know, <laughs> fixing a wheel hub or something yeah. like that. So Slim had to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So there was, um, you know, a lot of people have this idea, particularly with, um, you know, country musicians, that there's this idea of someone with just a guitar over the shoulder. There was a bit of an operation from, even even in the early days, there was a, was a team that kind of got this show on the road. Yes, it was. It was a very small team to begin with, I, I tell you. We just all piled into old Betsy. Mm -hmm. It's an old 39 Ford, hubby back one, and pulling an old caravan that in the end I called the egg because of the shape of it. You know, it was dreadful. (laughs) (laughs) The um, water tank didn't work, neither did the so-called electricity contact, you know, connections. It was a case of cooking over a Primus. You know, it was pretty, pretty rough. So... As soon as I thought we might be able to afford it or 
going to hire purchase. <laughs> I got one that was a bit bigger. It had a metho stove with two burners on it. <laughs> Fancy. <laughs> so were you born into a musical family? Like, where did music find you first? I was born in Singleton in the Hunter Valley. Mm-hmm. And my father was a country school teacher. So we moved around a bit in there. But mum played piano. And everywhere that they moved, she took the piano. That's the old piano that's still there up the hallway. Right. There was always music around in that mum played the piano and then she and dad went to learn to play the Hawaiian steel guitar. Yeah. When I was, oh, only about seven or eight, they bought me ukulele and one of those E to Z tutors. So I used to bang away on that. And then mum started teaching me a little bit about what to do on the piano and how to put chords together. And that was enough for me to start off with. Then Dad showed me how to vamp on the steel guitar. Like, if you saw the people playing the dobro now... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see, well, that was what they then called the Hawaiian steel guitar. So Heather and I began singing very young. And I started, and then Heather followed into it um i used to laugh i used to say she was one of these kids that said whatever you can do i can do better sort of yeah. thing. and she generally <laughs> did she was jolly good at it <laughs> no but that's where the music came from and then um, i'm very fortunate mum and dad decided that i should learn to play guitar and then heather of course wanted to be in it and she was so small that she couldn't really manage a guitar even the small one that they had made for me and so she had a ukulele. We started singing, you know, the local school concerts and um, church concerts, things like that. Yeah. But we ended up being on air pretty early. Yeah, you were about 10 yeah, when you and Heather first you see, well, the, made your debut. Um, Norm and Arthur Scott used to record for the old Regal Xenophone label as singing stockman. And they had a Sunday morning radio program on 2GB every Sunday morning in Sydney. And so once a fortnight we came to Sydney for our lessons, we used to end up on the um, radio on that morning singing. So, yeah, I think that I was 11 or 12, Heather's two years younger. Was that relayed back to Singleton? (laughs) No, this was... Not that time. When Uh, we had our own show later, in later years, yes. (laughs) Even up on Doyle's Creek near Singleton, I I believe everything stopped on a Saturday night. So all the neighbours tuned in to Melody Trail. So what was it like being a a child star in Singleton? (laughs) Yeah, it was a bit strange, wasn't it? (laughs) I didn't know anything about that at all. Because we then... Living down in the Southern Highlands, Dad was teaching a little place called Yandera down towards Metagon. We'd get on the train and get up to Sydney and have our lessons and that sort of thing. Go back um, to Dad teaching us, you know, for three hours. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us at what point um, did you stumble across this this city slicker from Kempsey? You were more country. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that I'm not sure if that, the documentary goes into that but uh, it sounds like Singleton you're getting a bit less of a sea breeze than Kempsey <laughs> <laughs> it did rather but 
Well, when I was in high school and Dad was in the army, we Mum moved us down to Sydney. And gradually, Heather and I began finding that, well, we were doing so many um, uh, sort of concerts and everything that in the end Mum was saying, no, you've got to do your homework first sort of thing. But when we first met, Sam and I, Heather and I were already... Um, running our Melody Trail radio show and that was on um, 2KY at 6.30 every Saturday night and I'd heard about Slim um, and I think I heard some records of his I think I know Mum must have because she was lecturing us about diction yeah Yeah. and uh, she said you know that um, Slim Dusty, you can understand every word that he sings. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, what, you know. <laughs> anyway, when it's I met wrong. Slim, he thought I was just some sort of little city piece. Yeah. Uh, he didn't know anything about me, uh, really. He'd heard us plenty, he knew I had the radio show and all. And then I thought he was um, a bit of a lair, you know, a bit full of himself. Yeah. And I, of course, I got a bit of a surprise on seeing him because the first photo I saw of him had been printed back to front. Right. So he looked as if he was left-handed. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, okay. about 40, you know, <laughs> and quite plump. Yeah. And he was nothing of that at all. <laughs> so that's how it started anyway, until we got to know each other a lot, lot better, working together, you know. And where would have your hub been when you started working together and started touring? Where would have would it, would it, was it Sydney was it uh, was was there somewhere in the middle of all these towns you were visiting? No, for Slim and me, we were married, and we had built a house here in Sydney over at West Epping. We were both saving, and we began running shows in Sydney because at that particular time, late forties and early fifties. You could go to a country music show in some suburb of Sydney nearly every night of the week. That's how big it was here. So we were saving and um, putting every penny aside because Slim wanted to have his own show and be touring. And I was perfectly happy to go along with that. It sounded great. When we did start... We had 19 pounds in our pocket and we had the old car. We had one microphone. Um, I don't know how many speakers we had, one or two. And then we had an old, um, sorry, a new Ferrograph tape recorder, the um, reel-to-reel tapes. Yeah. So when we started off, we couldn't afford a big team with us. So it ended up with... Slim and me, Barry Thornton, who began as a singer but ended up being Slim's lead guitarist for years, and uh, Malcolm Mason on whips and ropes, and Barry became the comedian of the show as well. So that was it, and you needed something else. So we used to run a talent quest at night, the prize for the winner each night was to be recorded on the ferrograph and that would be sent to Heather back in Sydney 
and um, we would they would then be played. That was the big prize, more or less, to be played on the Melody Trail on the next Saturday night. You know, so that was what our first touring team consisted of. <laughs> So success didn't come instantaneously. It was a, it was a long road. <laughs> it was a very long road, mm. all very long one. <laughs> we went great up the coast, you know, because up there um, was a lot of dairy farming communities. Mm. They're up early in the morning in mostly uh, country or hillbilly programs, they used to call them, would be on early in the morning. And then um, it all turned a bit sour when we um, went up past to one when we started coming down the New England. Yep. That's when Betsy seemed to be, you know. In the cold country. Oh, mm. yes, all the tyres went and that sort yep. of thing. And um, uh, anything that could happen did happen. Yep. And it was getting on towards Christmas, so everyone was saving up their money for Christmas too. By the time we got halfway down the New England, things were looking, you know, not real good. <laughs> yeah. So I rang mum. <laughs> <laughs> Glenniness, you called mum around there or halfway down? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a hard town up there in Glenniness. <laughs> oh, never mind. Windy and cold. Hope springs eternal, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. So we got Gordon Parsons and, and um, went out around Walgett and that sort of thing. Right. And made enough to pay mum back. Okay. You see? And then, and so, also to think, this might work. It's a bit nicer out there at Walgett. <laughs> On the plains there. It was. The farms are a bit bigger. They would yeah, yeah. It's a bit warmer, That's a bit right. flatter. And, um, when did success come? I mean, it was a, it was a few years down the track with um, a pub yes. with no beer. Well, that was a big breakthrough. But big before break. that, Slim had cut through with rain tumbles, rain tumbles yep. down in July. In July, yeah. And... He had a lot of big records out. We weren't getting any records out because simply because I was on the road away. Yeah. Uh, Heather was in Sydney, and then when she married Reg, we're touring at opposite ends of the nation, yeah. you know? Yeah. So we concentrated on Slim, and he kept recording. Then, when the pub just happened, it was recorded, and he thought that was going to be the B side. Yeah of a Regal's Xantophone single. <laughs> well, you know what happened. Yeah. And we didn't realise because by that time we had just joined up with Frank Foster to do uh, to work on the showgrounds. Right. To see how that went. Is it showy? Yeah. On the r- <laughs> with all the rides. <laughs> yeah, that was a fascinating um, yeah. thing. I wouldn't have swapped it for anything. A fantastic experience. You went ahead with that? Uh, while Pub yeah, no yeah. Was oh, the Pub with No Beer happens records. after it. Oh, right. You see, we, we went up and joined up with um, Frank and, and the big tent and the whole bit. And then we left all the gear in there and we went out to Charleville and uh, Carnival and did the, um, some of the Western uh, agricultural shows out there. And when we came back into Brisbane, all the showmen were saying to Slim, gee, that's a good one, that one you got on the hit parades. Right. You know, and yeah. he said, what? And he said, well, that one about the pub. And we said, oh, go on, you know. We, they, nobody but nobody was playing any country by that time. And this was about 1956, a long time ago. 
It happened. A man called Alan Lappin in Brisbane picked it up and started playing it. And then when Bob Rogers was uh, also working in Brisbane, he was going to move to Sydney. He wanted a novelty and took the pub with him, brought it with him down here. And it just exploded. Did that become the song that people would request on the, sh- on, on the road? Is that oh, the, the one that would be, they'd be yelling Well, for? the first year, no, Slim would get up and sing it. After that, that first year when it actually hit, then after that it started everybody asked for the pub. They expected the pub. Yeah. So Slim always had to, yeah. had to sing it. Wasn't didn't worry him at all. He sang it very oh, happily. Really? <laughs> <laughs> he used to laugh about it when he first heard it. He said, "I think that's the funniest thing I've ever heard." <laughs> he loved it. <laughs> so you were managing to, I mean, in in a career that saw obviously Slim had a hundred albums, which sounds like he was busy. You, you and your sister, did you manage to link back up and 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 make more music? No, because once um, I was away touring. We were touring, then we began touring, we were on the road. Well, actually, it was 11 months of the year to begin with. We knocked it back to nine. No, we weren't singing together at all. Mm. And uh, we didn't sing together as a duo until again into the 80s. When we um, met up again after she'd been a while in America. We came back and it all just clicked in again. She toured with us for a long time. But that didn't stop you from writing a lot of music, really, in those years. And yes. You had a big gong with um, Lights on the Hill. I mean, that yes. Was, I mean, how did that song come about just from all those, all those nights of driving Betsy? Betsy. Ah, Betsy. Poor old Betsy was long gone. But yeah. <laughs> I had a, a station wagon and it was an automatic one. I can only drive an automatic one. Lights on the Hill happened a long time later. In the meantime, I was writing other songs, a lot of different songs. Um, Slim recorded some sort of rockabilly songs and he wanted some. I wrote two or three of those yeah. uh, for him, which he recorded. Ace of Hearts, Don't, woman no, don't Want No Woman Around. I wrote that one. <laughs> I thought, no, you can enjoy singing that one. Love. <laughs> but Lights on the Hill... Um, Lights on the Hill, I wrote, I was driving a, a loaded caravan, a wagon rather, pulling a loaded caravan too. Slim was ahead of me in the big truck under, and the big van and Barry was ahead of him in the smaller truck and I think the towing caravan for the girls. We were going to pick up the rest of the show that was going to meet us at Warwick in Queensland. Yeah. And this was June, and it was freezing cold when I got up through Tamworth, and you know, go over the Moonby Range there, and heading sort of over the range and up to Gyra. And uh, there used to be a a piece of that road, it's gone now, it's changed now, because it was dangerous. And this was, they called it the Devil's Pinch, you know, between Moonby and Gyra. Mm. It was pouring rain, it was black, and all the semis were heading to Sydney for the morning markets. And you see, they got the lights, the full beam. Yeah. And of course, I had my little station wagon, full beam. But the, <laughs> as the trucks come over the hill at me, you know, because 
my left foot and leg is completely paralysed from polio, childhood polio. I've only got one foot to work. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, the uh, controls. Well, the one I was driving was a 70s wagon and the dimmer switch is still on the floor, yeah. not on the gear stick. <laughs> so I had the, um, you know, accelerator, brake and dimmer switch. And every time through the Moonbee Ranges, the truck would come over, hit me with that. I'd go flip from there over to there, hit the dimmer switch back onto the accelerator because with the load I kept pulling and it was on the little van, I thought it was going to stall. It would have stalled if I hadn't kept the motor going. So I did that sort of a dance all the way through the Moonbees. Yeah. And when I got to Devil's Pinch, it was pouring rain and it was black and I thought... I'll end up going to sleep, you know, with it going like this. So I thought to myself, well, I wonder how long it would be before Slim came back to find me if I go over there. (laughs) So I don't think I'd better do that. And so I just started writing the song. And I wrote it as if it was a truckie writing it. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah. it was a truckie, a terrified truckie writing a song. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It's a great story. And the, and, the, and the windscreen wipers are beaten in time. Yeah, yep, yeah. and they were. <laughs> and they kept going. You know what? Though I believe an American truckie told my, my grandson's now wife, Flora, couldn't have been written by a woman. <laughs> Definitely not. He wouldn't believe her. Flora, I don't know whether she ever convinced him or not. Anyway, I got up there and Slim was unhooking the big van when I got there. And I said, oh, wrote a song on the way up. Oh, he said, did you? Okay. Well, he said, you ought to put it down on cassette before you forget it. And normally, I'd just laugh that off and never do it. But this time, I pulled a guitar out from under one of the bunks and the little cassette recorders we always carried. And I did. I, I I just sang it roughly with the guitar onto this cassette and I just put it away and forgot about it. And at Christmas time, I had Colleen Trenworth staying with us, Colleen and Paul, from the Hamilton County Bluegrass Band. And I I remembered this cassette and this song. said to Colleen, oh, I've got something you able to play fiddle on. It's just right for it. Colleen got it and, oh, when I was singing it, she just swung straight into that cage and fiddled with it and it was just Perfect. I said, gee, that'd be a good one for Slim. Oh, she said, that's going to, that, that would really be good for him. And yep. Slim said, nah, <laughs> <laughs> too many words, can't get my breath or anything. You better give it to somebody else. And I said, oh, <laughs> uh, the only time I ever pushed him about yeah. trying to sing something. But, of course, it was very different to anything that he had done before. Yeah. And he wanted to go fishing. Yeah. <laughs> so he went fishing and I sat at the piano. And then when I got the cassette, because when I got the cassette out then, I discovered that he had used it as a rehearsal tape and he'd wiped all the second half of the song off. Oh. And so it was just as well that he was out fishing. Like the, yeah. <laughs> the little song that could. It was uh, against all odds. It ended up. 
Yeah. He ended up on stage. Yeah, it was funny. It was his closer for over 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> and once he got into it, I swear, I don't think anybody else could sing it like he could. Yeah. He'd get up on stage, he'd thump his heel into the stage floor and then he'd go into it. And with the band, the band knew it so well with him, you know. Yep. Mm. I've only found, found perhaps two, maybe two, that can um, come close to yeah. a slimmest version, uh, yeah, stage yeah. version. There's been a lot of tried. Yeah. There's been a lot of covers. There's yeah, only a couple. Or did you ever think it was going to win the golden guitar? I mean, after all this perseverance. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you see... I, I got a terrific shock when that was the first Golden Guitar Award. Yeah, it's first years, wasn't it? And I was really amazed when I won the, um, the first Golden Guitar for, you know, for the song of the year. I found it very difficult to believe because in the first place in country music, it was always the artist. The songwriter was way back there mm-hmm. and, you know... I had been writing songs that Slim had singing, but no one was taking much notice of the fact that I was writing them. Yeah. You see, because songs didn't really become important, it seemed to me, in Australian country music until perhaps the 70s. Suddenly, it's like the songwriters, um, the songwriters got together and had their own sort of um, songwriter awards and everything, and their slogan was, first the song. Yeah. And then since then, of course, it's got to the stage where they're asking um, singers to, you know, oh, haven't you written any of the songs for the album yourself and all that? That was never the case, really. Yeah. Things changed a lot. So singer-songwriter is a new term in itself for, for a lot of musicians, you think, like... Yes, a lot of the songwriters, the Bush songwriters, um, actually, they used to start singing then afterwards, people like Ernie Constance, Dan Costa, yeah. you know, some of them, and it was great. Yeah. But nowadays, everybody seems to be looking for the songs first. Yeah. yeah. And it's a real turnaround. It's quite surprising. But anyway, after that, I thought, oh, I can write what I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think... I think I'll all listen next time. (laughs) (laughs) So where do you see Australian country music heading in the future? I think in one way they're trying to split it too much. Mm -hmm. Mm. You know, your country, or your art, there's different styles of it. Mm. You're getting away from the core of it if you're not concentrating on actually... We always say, you know, you, you have to know the roots of country music if you're going to sing it, no matter what style of country you want yeah. to sing. No, we spoke to John Williamson um, about a year ago and he was concerned that um, Australian country music was getting a bit too Americanized in how it sounds, about how everything's in danger of becoming too homogenized. Have you noticed that? I know what I know what John means. Yeah. I also know that for or I feel that for a music, a genre or any music to survive, it does have to evolve. Yeah. And it does have to and it will have its 
branches. Um, I think that at the moment, though, perhaps too many of the singers coming on are getting too influenced by all the alternatives. They, they don't even know where the route begins yeah. Yeah. because they've got all the branches there and they're getting in the way. Yeah. What's it, that they can't see the forest for the trees? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a bit confusing for all, um, all young artists. You've got to be pretty well established in what you're doing um, to stick to your road and to make something of it without getting yourself off on all these other little branches. They're mixing it up too early. They're mixing it up too early. Yeah. And they don't really know where they're going, a lot of them, the young ones. I think they need to um, go back and start again. One thing that has kind of assured, you know, a future for country music in Australia is the uh, Tamworth Country Music Festival, uh, which you were kind of heavily involved in from the start. I guess anyone who was around was, was, mm. was, was going to feature. You were actually quite... Quite instrumental, would you say? Yes. I was one of the four or five that established the Country Music Association of Australia. And that was um, established when it looked as though we were going to lose the uh, awards. Yeah. You see, country artists, to survive in those days when, from the time rock and roll took over... And, you know, you had to hide your albums underneath this nearest rock sort of thing. You know, it was ridiculous, but that's the way it was. That's what sent a lot more of the artists out on the road, which is a good thing anyway. But it became that people were touring all the time and you never saw your friends unless you happened to crisscross your tour somewhere. Then along came the um, Golden Guitar Awards. Well, for us, that was somewhere where we could all meet one week in the year and we could also have one that one night for ourselves and for our music. And when it looked as if we were going to lose that, it caused more of an uproar and, and really a, a noise that yeah. nobody expected. Yeah. Because we didn't want to lose that one night. And so, yes, that's when I got interested in some of the industry-style things. A lot has kind of happened, uh, obviously, as, as we mentioned at the start of the interview, uh, a career on the road, a career uh, spent promoting the newest release, uh, whether that be uh, mm -hmm. something you've written, something Slim's written, something Slim's recorded, released, or anyone else that was around you at the time. What do you think was kind of some of the, the most exciting places to visit? There was a lot of heartlands for, for, for your show? Uh, no, we'd be out on the road when something was released. Yeah. You know, until you could say that every car had a radio. Before that, half the time we didn't know when things were released. Yeah. We didn't know how things took off. After Lights on the Hill, the record companies kept in touch better and everything like that. And also, mobile phones made a big difference. If you're in a caravan, you know, you can go to ring the kids at school or something. One call a week was all you were allowed, and you had to go and just line up at the one, um, the post office telephone booth, that sort of thing. So when we were out on the road, half the time we didn't know what was happening 
in the um, music industry. Yeah. So a lot of the time there were some surprises, good ones, bad ones, and most peculiar ones sometimes. <laughs> Kev Carmody said that to us recently. He, he went years at a time without knowing a song had been a hit because he didn't have a phone. So he was... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I mean, you can fight them, can't you? But in the end, you've got to jolly well join them. <laughs> in, in this documentary, it's taken a few years to kind of get together. It certainly has, Clancy. My grandson, James, has actually been working on this. He's worked for about seven years to try and get this all happening. Yep. So they tell me to that I should, I had written books, you know, about Slim and about, you know, the touring and everything like that. But the publisher said, and Anne pushed me a lot, she said, you should tell your story because it's from a woman's point of view. I did that and strangely enough, it was um, that, that the television producer and then that this producer, Chris Brown, picked up on and, of course, he found he was James with everything there, yeah. all the archives, all the work that he'd put into it for years. He'd even written, written um, treatment of the story. Yeah. Well, they just, Chris and, and James, they managed to get Creve Standards, who's a great director, and... Before I knew where it was, there I was yeah. talking to and starting on this, and I was pretty apprehensive. I don't, I don't think I could have gone into it and all of it if I hadn't had James to depend on. He's yeah. very dependable, yeah. very noble, and a hard worker. Yeah. <laughs> and now your poor um, grandson, I believe, has missed the screenings um, down in Melbourne for oh, the time being. It's he, very <laughs> hard on Jim it's, and It's Tora. a bit cruel, that twist of fate that he's, uh, he's oh. finally got this thing finished and... But I'm sure they'll have a Melbourne screening for him when it all opens oh, up. Mm. Oh, we'll have to have a premiere all over again when Melbourne opens up so that yeah. oh, <laughs> James can have some of the fun of watching it up there yeah, in a cinema. Because yeah. he and Flora got that rough song, mm -hmm. you know, and Flora in particular um, completely rewrote the second half of it, you know, the words about... Um, the band's gone home, but there's someone still singing along. Those words are definitely all Flora's. Yeah. You know, she's a great musician. She and Jim are really, really good, a good duo. <laughs> I think she, think um, they remind me a bit of Slim and me. Right. <laughs> it's Slim and I. <laughs> Slim and I. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a fantastic way to end, I think. Yeah, that, that's yeah, great. Right. It's, it's given all, all of the diehard listeners that are listening in now, not only is there the doco to look forward to, but there's also the next, next generation. Yes, there's the next generation. Because yeah. you see, there you are. You've got um, three generations on that song. Yeah. More or less, I wrote the basis of it. Um, then they did the co-writing, Jim and Flora, as um, Small Town Romance. They recorded it, but they had Anne, my daughter, featured vocalist in it. She was doing um, uh, vocal harmonies with, uh, um, with Flora, but then she sang the, all of the last verse. 
and everything. So that's the three generations of the family involved in one song. <laughs> Wowee. Yeah. I don't think that's ever happened before, has it really? No, no, not, not, not that I Certainly can not in this country. No. Mm-hmm. No. No, it's the album's just out and that song's on it. Okay. It's on the first first track, I think, on the on the album now. I don't believe you, small town. Romance. I don't believe you. No, mm. I don't believe you. Yeah, and it's a different song. It's far totally different from anything I've ever written before. Ah, okay. We look forward to it. We look forward to it. Now we've got a big, uh, a big plate of wagon wheels in front of us that um, will not yeah. be fit audio broadcasts. So we'll uh, we'll have to get stuck into these and um, have another cup of tea. Mm. But thank you for chatting to us today, Joy. What a lovely story. Oh, it's been good fun. Thanks, Errol. Thanks, Clancy. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Joy. And to uh, finish us up here today, we're going to listen to uh, Joy's daughter, Anne Kirkpatrick, singing uh, a song that was obviously made famous by Joy and Slim, written by Joy, and one of the best songs recorded by Slim Dusty, and according to Slim Dusty, one of the best songs he ever sang. So this is uh, Anne Kirkpatrick with The Biggest Disappointment. Wrapped up in a puzzle Having no one even thought of asking me So the day I turned 15 I caught the mail train Well to find what else might be in life for me But it didn't seem to be that way to me And the biggest disappointment in the family was me The only twisted branch upon our good old family tree I just couldn't be the person they expected me to be And the biggest disappointment in the world was me A lot more dinner times than there were dinners I learned a lot that hurt me at the time Then this quiet country boy went home a different man with a memory of distance on my mind Cause I spoke too loud and laughed too often Or maybe drank too many glasses down or Perhaps my clothes were older than I realized A relief to all concerned I left town And the biggest disappointment In the family was me Oh, the only twisted branch Upon our good old family tree I just couldn't be the person They expected me to be 